everybody and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Hi, Rich. Hey, Tim. How you doing? Good. And, uh, you know, we have a really special guest with us today. Um, it's, I will tell you, it's, it's the Easter break week. So we're going to take a break from like super breaking hot legislative news to do one of our favorite things, which is to do a little dishing uh, on politics and political history. And we couldn't have asked for a better guest than uh, our, the person joining us today, longtime Democratic staffer, strategist, consultant, guru. I'll let him, I'll let him tell us which one of those he likes the best. Bill Wong, who has a great new book out, uh, Tim and I have been devouring. It's called Better to Win. And if you're competitive, like people, all people in politics are, we know that it's, it is always better to win. So what a great title. Bill, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing this fine day? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thank you for joining us. Uh, as I noted, uh, Tim and I both have been just tearing through uh, our copies of your book, and it's uh, it's a great collection of war stories and thoughts on leadership and uh, politics and the the inside game of politics. And, you know, for junkies like us, man, that's it's just like catnip. So this is great. So um, take us a little bit, if you would, you know, what was the inspiration for the book? And, you know, I've been blathering, but what, what uh, do you feel readers are going to get out of this book? Um, so the initial... Uh, inspiration was as I left 30 years in, in the Capitol, one of the reasons why I wanted to retire was the culture was changing, term limits had really affected the place. Um, solving problems had become almost a joke in the legislature. Not that people didn't try, there just wasn't a lot of context about how it was done back in the day. And, and I, I was talking to you guys a little bit earlier about how this class of legislators are going to be the first class in probably a decade that's ever seen a deficit, a budget deficit, a significant budget deficit. And even though they've got a rainy day fund and they may not necessarily get hit by it this year, they definitely are gonna to have to deal with it next year. And I really felt that there wasn't enough contemporary stories out there about how legislators dealt with these types of difficult issues. I talked to a lot of staffers at panels and uh, mentorship programs, and they have no idea how to engineer a heavy lift. Uh, what the process has become is that staffers are almost a glorified binder carrier from one committee to the next committee, and it becomes almost just mechanical. There's no there's no art or craft to addressing some of the, the concerns that are out there from a, from a public uh, servant standpoint. I think one of the things I thought was really interesting is you talked about in in the book how you would approach people if you knew that you go into their office and look around and say like, oh, this person is clearly into sports or they're into movies or they're into their religious, whatever. And you would use terminology that was relevant to them. You know, if they were a sports person, you'd put it in, you use sports metaphors. And if they were, you know, had Star Wars things, you would, you know, include references to that. And I thought that is really and sort of an unspoken thing in communication, you can be really good by recognizing who you're talking to and, you know, having a very different discussion about the same issues, 
with someone using terminology that they're comfortable with and, and talking in terms of their, that, that was really fascinating. And that doesn't really get talked about in, in political narratives enough, I think. It's not taught. I mean, you're not taught to communicate that way. And yeah, I think yeah. that in this current era, you're taught to just yell at the other side. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, I, I've always remembered this interview that Bernie Sanders did while he was running for president the second time. And he was sitting down with an editorial board and he said something about like, oh, you know, I never remember anyone's birthday. Like, you know, I know like other candidates, they'll make a point of like sending you flowers on your birthday or a card or whatever. He's like, I don't remember that. And you could see the editorial board looking at each other and really like, yeah, people do that because it works. <laughs> it's like, it's a very effective strategy to get people to like, kind of like you and kind of be predisposed to want to agree with you. And he just threw that out the window. And, and I feel like that's a lot of, a lot of the, the era that we're in. It is very much like, you know, my way or the highway versus, you know, kind of collegiality. And, uh, you know, there were interesting parts of your book that referred to that and, and talked about the ways that that can be a really effective tool towards getting people to come along with you. Yeah. And I think that if you get agreements based upon that, it's more likely the policy will stick. Uh, I started my legislative career on the Senate side, and there's a lot of collegiality there where Republicans, Democrats, they always work together on stuff. They, they always had, in some cases, were criticized for having overly long conversations about topics, uh, but to get to common ground. But the, ultimately, I felt like the deals that were struck in, in, those, in that context held because people felt like they had ownership over what the end product was. They might not have agreed 100% on every aspect of a bill, but ultimately because they all had a voice and an opportunity to weigh in on things that were important to them, that it was enough for them to hold to whatever the agreement is. Now, when you pass stuff one year, uh, highly likely that somebody's going to try to unwind it next year if they felt like they were unfairly you know, uh, forced into accepting this policy. And I think that that's one of the biggest threats about having these super majorities is that oftentimes you do feel like you're just drinking out of a fire hose with regard to policy decisions without having any type of thorough conversation or part of the process of, even if you're a minority, I mean, you know, obviously I'm a Democrat, but I think that the Republicans deserve to have an opportunity to express their concerns on issues. And, and if they can get stuff into that, you know, those policies to do it. Bill, there's a couple along those lines. There's a couple of things that you point out in the book that really resonated with me. Um, you know, we have interns, of course, and and I speak to you know a fair number of journalism students and classes and that thing. And one of the things that I always start out with is I ask them, "What business are you are you, are we in? What industry do you think we're trying to get into?" And you know, we get all the you know truth, love, the American way, all that stuff. But, you know, and that's fine. But I always tell them, no, we're in the relationship business. Every single thing we do is about building relationships with our readers, our colleagues, our editors, certainly our sources. And there's lots of elements that go into that relationship, none more important than our, our integrity and how we um, deal with people. And, you know, we can make people mad at us as long as we were telling the truth and we were treating them fairly and all of that stuff, right? Those are the things that I, I really hammer home to my uh, interns and, and to young people a lot. And you, it's one of the first things you brought up when you were talking about leadership was that how you treat people and the relationships that you build with them and, and how that is the bedrock of getting 
things done, right? And the other one, and, and then I'll stop talking and let you address these, but the other one was the ability to say you're sorry when you've made a mistake and to own up to your mistakes. And it's another thing I've told our interns over and over. It's okay to not know the answer. And it's okay if you make a mistake, just own it. And they've already seen me make a couple of really stupid ones since they've been with us this this, this year. But, but uh, I like to think I own up to them and say, sorry, hey, I screwed that up. If you would, please, because I, I thought those were really key parts of the book. Would you elaborate a little bit on on um, on what you what you were talking about in that regard? Yeah, I think my concern about our general, I don't know, ethos now is that it's very superficial interaction between characters, I guess. And in the past, it, it was about, like you said, relationships. It's about trust. It's about how we interact as a community. So there are different elements. And obviously, as a staffer, my job was to sell a certain point of view. And I've told some of the other reporters that I deal with on a regular basis, is like, you're here to keep me honest. I want you to do a really good job at what you do, because that keeps me honest. And if I'm doing my job right, I'm keeping you honest on stuff as well. And that's how it all works, is that um, you know, if you if you live in a world without gravity, there's you know your your bones and your muscles are weak. But if you're in an era where there's like this kind of dynamic relationships, it really makes us all better, makes us produce better work, it makes us produce um, you know having to have that debate in the open about you know perspectives and being feeling safe enough to have those types of conversations and also feeling safe to to have made mistakes and and grow from it or, or evolve as some politicians may say, is, is part of the process of making good public policy and serving the public. Because like, you're all, we're all part of serving the public in one way or another by what we do. And it's like an ecosystem that is only preserved by that type of interaction. You know, one thing I, I really found interesting in the book was you kind of walking us through where the AAPI caucus, which didn't exist when you actually came you know, uh, where they came from and where they are now and, and where uh, Asian American political power is kind of evolving. And there was a story early on in the book about when you first got into the Capitol and you were working with some staffers who weren't even elected to derail a gubernatorial appointment. And that story was fascinating because it showed, you know, how being clever and, and using your strategy, your, you didn't, you didn't have strength. It's not like you had strength in numbers and a bunch of members on your side, but you still won. Can you go over that story? I think you know the story I'm talking about, right? Yeah. It, uh, so what had happened was Jess Unruh, um, who was the state treasurer, one of probably the second most powerful politician in the state at the time, based upon how he structured the treasurer's office after, becoming, after having been speaker of the assembly for a, a number of years, um, he passed away and then there's a vacancy and basically those constitutional officers, if there's a vacancy, the governor can appoint. And at the time, the governor wanted to appoint Dan Lundgren, who was a U.S. Congress person. Well, Dan Lundgren, when he was in U.S. Congress, he was there for the debate over the redress for Japanese Americans for their internment or incarceration uh, during World War II, their unfair incarceration. And he said some very racist things. He opposed it vehemently. Uh, he was a very vocal opponent of it. And he um, said some things that, that were that, that were very offensive, and Congressman Robert Matsui was really upset about the things that he said during these redress hearings. And um, 
So when he came up for when when Lundgren came up for that appointment, um, the Matsui had talked to the community and they wanted to do something about it. They wanted to send a message that you can't uh, say that type of stuff, you know, completely racist things about Japanese Americans and get away with it. But they didn't have anybody in the legislature, but they did have two women who were senior staffers, but not elected officials, uh, Meili Tom and Georgette Mura, who were staffing this Office of Asian Affairs for David Roberti, which was revolutionary at the time because David Roberti had an Office of Asian Affairs, he had an Office of Latino Affairs, he had an Office of African American Affairs. Like he, as, as a kind of statewide uh, political figure as, as the Senate pro tem, he wanted to serve all these constituencies. And, and these two women ran this office out of uh, a remodeled supply closet. Um, when I was an intern in their office, basically, I, I sat in a chair outside the office and it was a coffee table that was my desk. Uh, that's how small it was. And um, they were they, they were at heart organizers, but they had no authority, they had no power. And I think I could say this now, they had this kind of wink and a nod that uh, from the pro tem that I don't know what you're doing and if I'm asked about it, uh, uh, I will just look at, at people puzzled. So uh, they were tacitly kind of given authority to to operate outside the lines a little bit, and they did. And they they went about organizing um, opposition, building coalitions to uh, oppose Lundgren's appointment. And um, I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that the governor at the time was Duke Majin, who was very popular. And um, you know, Lundgren was a sitting congressman, and uh, and the Senate was very collegial place. They, they, they typically don't get into political fights, but uh, these two women organized an effort to block his uh, confirmation to this nomination, and they won. They won by one vote, and that one vote was Senator Quentin Kopp. So, I mean, it was, it was high drama because uh, it just came down to one vote, and these two uh, petite Asian-American women who had n technically no status uh, was were able to orchestrate or engineer this this effort to to block a gubernatorial appointment. So it was it was a huge political victory for the Asian American community. Well, and you, as as Tim noted, there wasn't an AAPI uh, caucus when you started. Um, you ended up being chief of staff to uh, Judy Chu, who's had a had a fabulously long career. Um, talk a little bit about that uh, effort to you know to to bring more. Uh, Asian Americans into uh, into the legislature and to have them have you know a, a nice uh, a powerful voice in setting public policy. Um, you know, we had spent like a decade without, so it was it was uncharted territory. We didn't even know what it would look like, other than looking at the Latino Caucus, and they've obviously they're fifty years old this month, and the Black Caucus and what they were able to do, and and um, hoping that we could replicate some part of that. Uh, but uh, it, it was hard because it's the chicken and the egg type of thing. If you don't have members there to start off with, how, how do you get there? So it was a slow build. Luckily in 2000, uh, Wilma Chan and Carol Liu had gotten elected. And then prior to them, George Nakano was there. And George Nakano was actually the one who uh, asked uh, Assembly Speaker Hertzberg to establish the API caucus. And uh, they were able to establish it with three members, and then uh, Judy came in as, as the fourth member. Um, so, and then that was, you start to get critical mass where you can kind of organize around other candidates and build from there. You, you know, you mentioned uh, Bob Matsui, who was a, 
you know, a towering figure. And of course, his wife, Doris, has, you know, picked up that mantle and has become a towering figure, uh, not literally, because she's not tall, but, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it, the impact here in Northern California of, of that caucus has both in at the state legislative level and, and Congress has been pretty, has been pretty impressive over the last 20 some odd years, I would say. I would have to think you would agree with that. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's growing. And then actually, um, uh, I was tracking like all the all the victories. And right now, there's close to 200 uh, state and federal uh, AAPIs in office um, you know, on state and federal level, which I had never thought I thought we'd all be concentrated in California or Hawaii, but they're they're everywhere. Um, and actually, the one of the you know, like, outside of my Democratic Party, uh, bona fides, the one of the amazing things is in Arizona, the, the one Republican that's, that survived in Arizona was the, uh, an Asian woman who is the state treasurer. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty interesting that uh, there, there are so many Asians now that, that are, are rising in, in the political world. And I think uh, in the last two cycles, it was responsive or uh, reflexive to all of the anti-Asian hate that, that had occurred. Uh, seeing Asian-American voter participation uh, this last cycle in Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada, and they basically were the margin of victory with regard to allowing the Democrats to hold the U.S. Senate. Well, and can you talk about that a little bit? So we've seen really a, a unique response to the COVID pandemic that people are blaming it on Asian people. Uh, you know, uh, the former president referred to it as the China virus, and it has caused some really, really ugly incidents across the United States, certainly a lot of incidents in California. And I know that you were working on trying to raise awareness of that and, and fight fight the expansion of that. Can you talk about that? Do you feel like that has that slowed down? Is it still the same? Where are we? Oh, no, it's actually gotten worse. I don't know if you're aware, but in states all across the nation, in fact, South Carolina just passed a law that prevented uh, the sale of, of land to uh, non-U.S. citizens who are residents from, who, who uh, originate from, I think, what they call like enemy states like China. So if you're, if you're a Chinese uh, legal resident in the United States, you can't buy property in South Carolina. Uh, clearly unconstitutional, but they don't care. I mean, they've, they've doubled down on the rhetoric, um, you know, their attacks on TikTok. I'm not, I'm not a particular big fan of TikTok myself. I don't understand it, and maybe I'm just aged out, but, you know, all of, the, all of the rhetoric is out there to uh, basically scapegoat China, and the inadvertent victims of that are Chinese Americans. Um, I don't think that you'll find many Chinese Americans who are big fans of the Communist Party in China, but people can't make that differentiation in, out on the street, so they're going to take that rhetoric, and then they're going to use that as an excuse to, to beat up whoever looks Chinese, and that, that doesn't just hurt Chinese, that hurts every Asian that's out there that you know, that that could easily be identified or, or at least, you know, portrayed as, as Chinese. Yeah, for sure. And that's, and we've seen that time and time again here in California, where people that are, uh, they're attacking someone, you know, people have attacked people they perceive as being Chinese, and they're not even Chinese, not that it's right in any way, shape or form. But, uh, you know, it's like that anger and that ir irrational hatred of, you know, of people, it has all sorts of negative repercussions, even beyond the obvious. And it doesn't have to be that, that, I mean, I think the worst thing right now is the deafening sounds coming from the Republican party. And, and, and I, I don't want to say that strictly from a partisan standpoint, because it is not necessarily the nature of the Republican party, because after nine 11, 
George W. Bush actually made a very public statement uh, to America saying, look, this was a horrible thing, but don't take it out on Muslim Americans. And that was very intentional. And that was also very intentional because um, Norm Mineta was advising him, was a member of his administration, and he was a Democrat, but he had come from, he had been interned, and he'd come from that perspective, and he was able to um, use his relationship with uh, President Bush and say, hey, this happened, and this could get bad, and obviously we don't want to be soft on enemies of the state, but we have to make sure that what happened to Japanese Americans doesn't happen to Muslim Americans as a result of what just occurred on 9-11, and, you know, President Bush at the time took a hugely courageous and responsible stance in, in being very public about asking Americans not to um, scapegoat Muslim Americans as a result of 9-11. Yeah, well, and, and the other part, talking about the partisan nature of this, I mean, for a long, long time, uh, Vietnamese Americans tended to be more likely Republican. Uh, you know, that was kind of a standard. I think that that is changing now. But uh for most of my lifetime, you know, Vietnamese immigrants tended to be Republican, and that was just a thing. Yeah, it's still the case in certain pockets, and definitely from a generational standpoint. In fact, that came heavily into play in uh, California Congressional District 45 when Jay Chen was running against Michelle Steele, and Michelle Steele ran these really horrific racial ads calling Jay Chen a communist and um, a disciple of Mao, had uh, photoshopped uh, Jay Chen with, uh, you know, Mao's red book and all these types. It had like these really ridiculous mockery of, of Chinese um, as, as, uh, as uh, you know, communist soldiers in these ads. I mean, it was, it was way over the top and she was able to hold her seat using those types of tactics. And I think that as long as the Republicans feel like they can win races using it, they're, they're, they're going to double down on it. Bill, I really want to ask you uh, along these lines about messaging, because it's one of the things you use the term in the book that I, I want you to expound on a little bit, talking about Democrats and messaging. And you refer to the Democrats as having suboptimal messaging, which is a really kind way of basically saying they get their asses kicked a lot by by Republicans um, when it comes to you know getting their particular message out. And look, I, I think as I noted to you guys before, you know, I mean, this is my my forte. You know, I have a master's degree in comm studies, and 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 so the the rhetoric, and I'm I'm always fascinated by what sticks with people, and it, it does seem like for the longest time, I mean, there's a lot of success to be had in demonizing the other side, and you know, um, I won't say Demos have been completely reluctant to do it, but even when they've done it, they're not really as good at it as uh, as their counterparts have been. Talk to me a little bit about messaging and how it's changed over the years and, and you know, maybe what does and doesn't really uh, work for Dems in our current uh, political state. Um, I think you agree that the biggest problem with democratic messaging is that we don't know who our audience is. We Democrats, from the strategy standpoint, talk to basically they talk to the audience that reflects whoever wrote the crap they wrote, um, and that's probably somebody who is highly educated, lives in an urban or coastal environment, and if you're trying to win races in California, you're trying to win you know races that uh, are marginal, you have to talk to a group of people that are significantly different than that. So 
to boil it down is that most democratic messaging or or strategists who who handle messaging now have never seen a sentence that they didn't think could be three paragraphs better. So, you know, you're in an environment where everybody's attention span is eight seconds, that you know, everything is down to 140 characters. And if you're trying to sell three paragraphs in an environment of 140 characters, you're just not going to do a good job. Um, I once said at a panel that uh, Democrats and the, the, the intersection of our policy and our messaging is, uh, is, is like a broccoli donut. Um, you take a donut, which is really appealing, and then you, you infuse, you know, quote unquote, good policies, and then you made the donut completely unappealing as a result of it. But, you know, that, that's how we sell our policies. And then we don't understand why people don't like, you know, what we do or, or understand what we stand for. Well, you know, you think of like things like defund the police and, you know, Willie, no, no less a light than Willie Brown said, that's the dumbest slogan I've ever heard in my life. Right. And, and what, what it made me think of is, look, I, I don't think anybody was really calling to cut off funding from the police, but when you have to explain to people down to the granular level all of the nuances of what a policy statement or slogan means, you've lost them. It's already too late. They've tuned out. They're only they're 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 hearing, you know, I'm I'm gonna call a cop and a cop won't come, right? So yeah. that that would seem to be right in line with what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. If like the old political adage was, if you're explaining, you're losing. So, you know, if you have to explain what defund the police is, you've already lost that argument because the the, the initial visual or, or, or literal translation of what you just said is lawless streets is basically what you've you, you kind of said is, is your policy. And if you have to say that's not what I meant, then why did you say it that way? Like that would never work with my wife. It's like, well, I, you know, I said something stupid. And I said, well, that's not what I meant. I really meant this. It's like by that time, I'm sleeping on the sofa. <laughs> Well, so how do you overcome that? I mean, you know, you have decades of doing this. How how do you get through to these, you know, more modern um, communication strategists to get to to get them to understand that you're actually driving people away from your message, not pulling them toward you? I think it's structural. I think I think a lot of it is structural in the sense that one, the people who are writing the policies are also the people who are in charge of messaging it, and that's not right because. The people who are writing the policies, if you can write a, a you know, a, a 300 page paper on something and, and very knowledgeable on it, you're not going to, you're not trained to condense it down to 140 characters. So we need more people who can basically translate what we're trying to accomplish into a digestible bite. You know, it's, it, it, it's a lot like a meal. You can't shove a nine course meal down in 30 minutes. And that's basically what a voter has with regard to some of the, the complexities of the policies that we have. So you have to you have to simplify it so that they could take it in easy bites and understand based upon their attention span, not their intellect, what they can digest. And that's that's the key nuance is that sometimes we're afraid that you know we don't want to dumb down our message. And it's not about dumbing down your messages, making it into uh, a size and into uh, a delivery model that that can be consumable by the person uh, who is overwhelmed with data and information and distractions. So you're not calling them dumb. You're just trying to be able to get uh, past all of that noise and explain very clearly what you're trying to do. And, you know, for Democrats, 
they need to expand where their training comes from. One of the, the best books I've ever read on communications was by Dr. Frank Luntz, who's a Republican uh, uh, strategist. And his, you know, his book is very clear about how to make things understandable and relatable to the public so that you can push policy. And we don't do that. We don't study the, the methods and the tactics that actually help us communicate. It's kind of like if you went to a foreign land and you refuse to speak the language of that foreign land. One, it's disrespectful. And then two, it's not very effective. Well, and, you know, Democrats have in the past had people who are very effective communicators. The one that comes to mind is Bill Clinton, who famously could go into any room and talk to any group of people, and they would leave thinking that he agreed with them 100%, and then he would go and vote against their bill. <laughs> but, uh, but he was very good at doing that. And, and I feel like the former president on the other side whatever his flaws are, he is an exceptional communicator to the people that are going to vote for him. He, you know, the nicknames and sort of the, the shorthand for stuff, he, he just comes up with things that really resonate. And Democrats do, I feel like a lot of the problem is that they're trying to pitch complex arguments and it's really hard to dial down a, compliment, a complex argument into, you know, a sentence. And uh, if you simplify it, something which, you know, some of the policies I would argue the Republicans have promoted are maybe a, an oversimplification of things, uh, you know, like our fentanyl problems are because of the border, a gross over, oversimplification of that. But it's easier to sell than the very complex things. So, so on that message, like right now, this, as we're talking, we've just seen Tennessee, the legislature in Tennessee just expelled two Democratic lawmakers for protesting on the floor. Uh, a third lawmaker narrowly avoided being expelled. Uh, as a communications person, what would you advise the Democrats in Tennessee and Democrats in general? How, what would you be telling them they need to be doing right now to, to get the message out about that people should be outraged about what happened or, or to, to kind of to make the most out of this incident? Your strategy has to be asymmetric. You can't attack them in Tennessee because you already lost that. I mean, with redistricting and gerrymandering and those types of things, so you're not going to be able to win in Tennessee, but you could use that to raise money to take away seats in vulnerable Republican districts uh, where you could have a higher amount of impact. So, you know, I, I used to study the martial arts and uh, in college, and one of the things you learn is that you, you fight the fight you can win, not the fight that you're in. So it, just because the other person, like, has, a, has uh, used kicks and fights from a distance, that doesn't mean that you should fight with kicks and work at the distance. In fact, if they are a, a, a kicker, then what you need is you need to get to get inside them, like where you know, you're know you inside of their kick and take them to the ground where you take that advantage away from them. So Democrats should be using this opportunity for key Democratic donors who would be outraged by this to pivot into raising the type of money that will allow them to win in very marginal um, Republican seats that are at risk and take back the House of Representatives, take back, you know, uh, make sure that you ensure the U.S. Senate or take back certain state house races that you can. I mean, I think that by pivoting that anger into uh, very specific areas where you can win, per, for example, the Wisconsin Supreme Court um, race that just occurred, I'm $45 million spent on Wisconsin Supreme Court, unheard of. Uh, but they was able to use all the anger from all the anti-choice stuff to drive that campaign and allow them to, to get a Democratic majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. 
um, we need to like look at the, play, the, the, the game board from a larger perspective and utilize what happened in Tennessee to drive victories so that we, we were, were winning the overall war, not just these, these individualized battles. You know, I think that perfectly illustrates the title of your book, which I noted in the beginning was it was better to win. But there's a you had there was an interesting uh, backstory on that. Would you give 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 us a, a down and dirty on how you decided to call the book better to win? Um, so I first of all is being Asian Americans, I didn't have like a lot of role models. If I mean just following the the natural course of our our you know just society, Asians are trained to be model minorities to not stick up, not be the nail that sticks up, not not rock the boat. And I had a few um, role models like Maylee Tom and Georgetta Murrah and uh, J.D. Nielsen, who was former deputy mayor of, of Los Angeles, who never had a problem with sticking up. Had, they had never had any problem with getting into fights. And so J.D. had uh, been on the Dick Reardon campaign as a campaign manager for when we ran for mayor. And he ran against an Asian American, Mike Wu, who was highly celebrated in our community. And it was a very difficult decision for her because of you know her work relationships and um, a variety of friendships that she had. She was just on Dick Reardon's side and she helped his campaign because of that, you know, out of loyalty. And um, there was a lot of tension and a, and, a, and a lot of controversy about an Asian American supporting the, the guy who's running against the person who potentially could be the, the first Asian American mayor of Los Angeles. And she was she was telling me about this, this you know, how she navigated that, because that that is a really difficult question. It's like, how do you navigate something like that? And she said, look, uh, you know, I have my reasons for supporting Dick. And um, if you're going to pick a side, it's better to win. And that's that's where that came from. And um, that 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 lesson has stuck with me ever since. So the book is out. Uh, this does come out on Monday and I think it comes out today. Correct. Yes, that's correct. And you can get it online at uh, uh, you can get on Amazon and Barnes and Noble dot com. And then you're going to be doing a live event here in Sacramento later in the month. Right. Uh, April 20th at Capitol Books on K, just because. I love bookstores and I want them to be successful and it's a cool little bookstore. It's next to the Crest Theater on K Street. Excellent. Well, Bill, thank you so much for, for joining us to talk about this. I, you know, I got to say, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be honest here. I really enjoyed this book and it's, it's very breezy for something. It's a history, you know, a lot of it is a history book. It is, it's fun to read. It's a fun read, a lot of familiar names and a lot of things that I knew about, but I didn't really know the backstory. So it was really an interesting read. And, and uh, I look forward to, I did not quite finish it yet because we just got it this week, but, uh, but I'm looking forward to finishing. It was, it was really an enjoyable, uh, enjoyable way to spend my evenings. Thanks so I much. I agree. I absolutely agree. You know, I love backstory. That's, uh, it's one of the things I enjoy the most, whether it's music or sports or politics. I love to hear how the sausage got made and, you know, uh, you, the book is really, really interesting reading. Maybe whether you're into politics or not, I would say if, you, if you're into human nature at all, or you're into just, you know, the dynamics of how you have a goal and you try to reach that goal, sometimes against what seem like really insurmountable odds. And that's, I don't want to spoil too much of the book for people, but I, I found it really fascinating because uh, you were part of some situations where you know you were absolutely the your your goal was absolutely not the favorite to win but but you know you with the folks that you were working with you you know you pulled it off and i, I found the stories of how that happened to be really really fascinating stuff so yeah i wish you a big success and urge everybody to to check it out it's uh it's definitely worth your time 
Thanks so much. And thanks for the opportunity for me to be able to talk about it. Uh, all the stuff that you guys do and you guys provide a lot of additional information to the staffers and the community out there to understand politics. And if we're going to get out of the situation we're currently in, people just have to have reliable sources of information and context for how you can actually do good stuff. And I think that that's, you know, what Capital Weekly does and what journalism in general and in the, the Capital Press Corps do. So it's, it's very important for us to provide this type of information for the people who are now currently policymakers and staff. That's great. Well, and Speaking of important journalistic uh, bona fides, uh, do you want to join us for our Who Had the Worst Week in California politics, or are you going to sign off and go on your own way there? I, I think I'll sign off. I mean, it was Easter week, so nothing really happened. I think the worst week in, in America was for Wisconsin Republicans who lost the state Supreme Court. You know, they deserved that one. Bill Wong, thank you so much. This is really interesting, and I, I encourage people to find your book. Uh, one more time, what was the title, Bill? Better to Win. Better to Win on Amazon at uh, Barnes & Noble, and maybe even at your local bookstore. Yep. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you, Bill. And now we're going to go ahead and turn to who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. As we were having the conversation with Bill Wong, it looked like it was going to be hard to find a candidate for who had the worst week. It's been a pretty slow week. Uh, the legislature is in recess. However. Just as we were finishing up our conversation with Bill, uh, news broke that a judge in Texas had issued a ruling ending the use of mifepristone, which is an abortion drug, been legal in the United States for over 20 years. And uh, shortly thereafter, another judge, another federal judge, uh, allowed the use to go forward while the appeal is being challenged. This uh, was a bombshell uh, across the United States, but especially in California, where Prop 1 was approved by two-thirds of the voters, enshrining a woman's right to abortion in the California state constitution. Uh, as you might expect, uh, the California Medical Association, Planned Parenthood, etc., have issued statements uh, urging this to be overturned, this decision to be overturned. Uh, it's a pretty dramatic moment in the wars over abortion. Uh, this is would have been unthinkable 20 years ago, and that we are here today is, I'm sure, a shock to supporters of women's rights, uh, supporters of abortion rights, and again, the 67% of Californians who voted for Prop 1. So we shall see where that goes. Uh, all right. Thanks a lot, and we will see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.